Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Bob Whitaker, who is the author of Anatomy of an Epidemic, which talks about psych drugs. And our second guest will be Dahlia Heller, who is the assistant commissioner in charge of drug and alcohol treatment in New York City. And she has a background as a harm reductionist before she started working for the city government in New York. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits. Any positive change from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. Or for more information, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. And our first guest is Bob Whitaker. The book is called Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness, in America, and Bob is right here with us. Welcome to the show, Bob. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Now, uh, tell us, what is the basic thesis of your book? Sure. Well, well the, the book basically investigates uh, a mystery, uh, so to speak. So we in America have really adopted uh, the use of psychiatric drugs, really embraced the use of psychiatric drugs in the past 30 years. So, for example, our spending on psychiatric medications has gone from around $800 million in 1987 to more than $40 billion today. And theoretically, this should be, you know, helping ease the burden of mental or psychiatric distress in our society. Well, as a first sort of as a first step for investigating that question, is that true? I mean, is this is this embrace of the medications really helping us as a society? I just looked at the number of people on government disability due to, um, uh, you know, a psychiatric um, illness or disorder. And what you find is that in 1987, the start of this real boom in the use of the medications, there were 1.25 million adults on disability. Well, today there are more than 4 million adults. Actually, it's getting close to 4.5 million now. So the question is, why, as we've embraced the use of these medications in such a, a full-fledged fashion, are we getting this extraordinary rise in the number of people on disability? And you can see it begs a question, you know, what's going on and how might the medications be uh, contributing to that rise? And so as I, so that just raises the question. And then what I did in this book, which I think is really new, is, is flesh out how do medications affect the long-term course of major mental disorders, such as schizophrenia, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and depression. That's the first thing. Begin. The reason this is different is when you look at how drugs get approved for use in our society and, and what the efficacy data is, it consists of trials that look at do these drugs knock down a target symptom of the, quote, disorder better than placebo. And generally the psychiatric drugs meet that standard. But that doesn't tell us how 
the medications may be affecting the long-term course of the disorders, and it's particularly in how well people are functioning, their physical health, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what I did was focus on that latter question. That's number one, and we can talk about what I found. The second question you have to ask when you're investigating this rise in the number of people on disability is, where are all the um, bipolar patients coming from? So, say, 25, 30 years ago, bipolar was a fairly rare disorder. Prevalence rates were around 1 in 5,000, 1 in 3,000, something like that. Well, today, among adults, it's around 1 in 50. So we've had this 100-fold increase in in people with bipolar. And if you look at the disability numbers, in, in, in large measure, they are being driven by this surge of bipolar patients. So those are the real two questions I investigate in the book. One, how do medications shape long-term outcomes? And two, uh, where are all the bipolar patients coming from? And could our use of medications, psychiatric medications, in some way be creating bipolar patients? Okay. Um, And what did you find out? (laughs) Well, big picture is this. Is, is, is... A, in terms of how the medications shape long-term outcomes, the first thing you find actually is when you try to flesh out uh, what's sort of the natural course of some of these disorders is by and large they're much better than you think. So, mm-hmm. for example, depression. If you would have talked to a depression expert at the National Institute of Mental Health in the 1960s, here's what they would have told you. Listen, gen- depression generally lifts on its own. It takes time. But generally, it's an an episodic disorder. Sometimes it lasts a month. Sometimes it lasts two months. Sometimes three months. And that's a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty. But you can expect it eventually to lift. And then when it did lift, and you followed patients for a long period of time, you'd find that about half of the people would never have... I mean, We're talking, by the way, these are studies of, of people hospitalized for major depression, okay? So they obviously have serious depression. Um, half would never suffer another bout serious enough for rehospitalization. About 20 to 30 percent would suffer um, sort of another acute episode that might last for a period of time, and only about 15 to 20 percent would become chronically ill. So it was seen as an episodic illness with generally a fairly good long-term course. Well, today depression, medicated depression, runs a much more chronic course. Mm-hmm. People are much more symptomatic. Um, their employment rates are lower, that sort of thing. That's depression. Bipolar outcomes, just in terms of how the outcomes have shifted, bipolar in the premedicated era used to have the same sort of uh, long-term course that you saw with depression. People would recover from their acute, acute episodes of mania or depression. About half would, and then they would recover to what's known as euthymia, means an absence of symptoms. And those euthymic periods might last a year, two years, three years, five years, ten years, fifteen, etc. And so about half of people hospitalized for bipolar illness would never have another episode serious enough to require rehospitalization. About and then twenty to thirty percent might have two or three more episodes in fifteen years, and then about twenty percent would become more chronically ill. Same thing to and long term employment rates, for example, for bipolar were around seventy five, eighty percent. Today, people have many more episodes. Um, they have um, employment rates of around 33% as opposed to 75-80%. Um, they have suffer, instead of recovering euthymia, they suffer a lot of low-level depression between acute episodes. We're seeing signs of cognitive decline in bipolar patients uh, long-term, whereas you didn't used to see cognitive decline. So you really see a deterioration in bipolar outcomes. 
perhaps the most surprising thing it has to do with schizophrenia slash psychosis. Because our understanding, and certainly when I began this journey, it was my understanding, was that schizophrenia was necessarily this sort of deteriorating long-term uh, disease. And what you find, say, in outcome studies of schizophrenia patients, first episode schizophrenia patients from 1945 to 1955, is they had this sort of heterogeneous uh, array of outcomes. About one-third of those hospitalized patients five years later would just be no longer schizophrenic. By that I mean they just weren't suffering hallucinations or the extreme disorganized thinking, et cetera, that leads to the diagnosis. About another third would still be having some symptoms but would be functioning well enough that they were outside the uh, mental hospital and actually employed or socially functioning at least fairly decently. And there was only about one-third, if you went back to this first episode cohort, that really had this chronic course that required a long-term hospitalization. So it's much more variable than we think today. And again, employment rates were first. If you if you followed a cohort of first episode schizophrenia patients in the 40s and 50s, about more than half would be employed five, ten years later. Well, today <clears throat> employment rates are about 10 percent, or even below 10 percent. So employment rates much worse. And most notably is this: uh, the National Institute of Mental Health funded a long-term study of schizophrenia outcomes that went back to the late 1970s, early 1980s. And they followed 200 um, patients hospitalized either for schizophrenia or uh, a milder psychotic disorder. And now let's just focus on the schizophrenia group. So they just followed them forward for 15 years. And during that time, the the, uh, researcher who was named Martin Harrell um, periodically, like at two years, four and a half years, seven and a half, ten and fifteen, he would interview them and he'd see how they were doing, whether they were symptomatic, whether they'd been rehospitalized in the past year, whether they were working, and whether they were using medications. And what he found so was so fascinating. He found that at the end of two years, the medicated schizophrenia patients were doing slightly worse than the unmedicated patients. And then between the two-year and the four-and-a-half-year follow-ups, their outcomes really diverged. The unmedicated patients as a group actually continued to get uh, quite a bit better, whereas the medicated patients didn't. They sort of stabilized at the same functional level, such that at the end of four and a half years, um, the recovery rate for those off medication was 40%, whereas whereas the recovery rate for those on medication was 5%. In other words, the recovery rate was eight times higher for the unmedicated group. Now, that, that difference in outcome stayed the same throughout the study, such that by the end of 15 years, again, the unmedicated patients were doing dramatically better. That was in the schizophrenia patients. If you look in the, the group with milder psychotic disorders, it was the same thing. The unmedicated patients were doing much, much better. Now, there can be many explanations for that. I and mean, you know, um, it, it just, it, you know, we, we could talk about that one study. But you can see that we this is the best long-term study we have. You and I and American taxpayers paid for that study. And we need to know that information and have it part of what our knowledge base is. We think about how we can best, you know, uh, create treatment, treatment, treatment systems that work. But we never hear about these studies that tell of uh, unmedicated patients doing well long-term. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, taking a psych class uh, at the new school, uh, they were talking about uh, 
uh, schizophrenics in third world countries that were doing much better than the schizophrenics in developed countries like the United States. And they were just saying, this is such a mystery, we can't understand it at all. And did you write something about that in your book? I did. And actually, this is the very bit of research that got me interested in this whole subject. So in 1998, I was doing a series for the Boston Globe in which we were reporting on abuses of patients in uh, psychiatric patients in research settings. But while I did that, while I was doing that series, I came upon the very World Health Organization studies you were, you're referencing, referencing here. And what the World Health Organization found in two different studies was that patients in three developing countries, India, Colombia, and Nigeria, had much better outcomes at two and five years than patients in the U.S. and other rich countries. And I'm like, well, why would that be? Why would living in a poor country, um, you know, lead to such a markedly better outcome? And in fact, the World Health Organization investigators concluded that, quote, living in a developed country is a strong predictor you'll never fully recover from schizophrenia. And I'm like, what in the heck is going on? So, uh, as as your psych book said it, they treat it as a mystery, and that's how, you know, I called up a bunch of people, and everyone said, well, that's a mystery. We don't really know, but maybe in the poor countries they're nicer to schizophrenia patients. We don't really know. But then you actually look at the literature, and what you find is that after the first such study, the WHO investigators hypothesized that maybe the reason for the better outcomes in the poor countries is that patients there are more medication compliant. They keep on taking their antipsychotics. So they looked at medication usage, in the second study, and what they found was that in the rich countries, 61% of patients regularly kept taking the drugs. But in the poor countries, in fact, only 16% of patients were maintained on the medications long-term. They used the medications in those poor countries to curb acute episodes of psychosis, but then most of the patients went off the drugs long-term. So what did, this was part of this whole thing, like, what's going on? Because my understanding was that people with schizophrenia, everyone needed to be on medications all their lives. Mm-hmm. And here was a story that told me something different. And um, so at least in that study, those two studies, you find better outcomes associated in poor countries where they use the medications in a much more selective manner. Now, there's two things that are interesting, that is, and that is a follow-up to that. One, there was basically a 25-year follow-up to those studies, and they went back and looked at the patients in those those initial studies, and they found, yep, the the long-term outcomes of the patients in the poor countries were much, much better 25 years later. And in fact, something like 60% basically weren't psychotic or schizophrenic anymore. They had just recovered from it. So that finding about much better long-term outcome was confirmed. But now there's been a recent study that follows medicated patients in poor countries and medicated patients in rich countries. And the medicated patients in the poor countries now have outcomes that basically are as bad as the outcomes in the rich countries. So in other words, they've fallen. And in in terms of employment rates, they're now getting as bad as they are in the rich countries. So it really raises the question, Okay, you had these poor countries. They embraced many in, in recent years. They really embraced our use of medications, antipsychotics, on a long-term basis, maintaining people on that on the drugs. And what has happened? Their outcomes have declined. Now, my professor in my psych class was also telling me that uh, they had tried in like the 60s or the 70s 
to do psychosocial treatments with schizophrenics. And he was claiming that those treatments had failed, that they had not worked. But uh, did you say the opposite in your book? Well, I just actually looked at the actual studies. <laughs> I didn't say the opposite. I reported on what was found. There really were three such studies, okay, um, that you know started at really from from the get-go with people who either had never been treated before or very early in their treatment uh, cycle. Um, and one was done by a guy named Maurice Rappaport in California. Another was done by Lauren Mosher, who, when he did his study... Um, he was head of schizophrenia studies at the NIMH. And third was done by the NIMH itself. Now, in each each study, if you summarize, in each study, th- th- you basically ha- had a design like this. <clears throat> There'd be an experimental group with, uh, treated with psychosocial care, and in that experimental group, they wouldn't initially be put on antipsychotic medications. And then if they didn't get better after a certain amount of time, um, the medications would be used, so it was really a delayed use of antipsychotics plus, uh, you know, psycho, psycho care, psychological care, social care, and then with the thought that some people would need the drugs, and then in the other randomized arm, people were just treated conventionally with drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in all three instances, the experimental arm had better outcomes. Okay, that's one number finding. Number two. In each instance, there was a group of somewhere between 40 to 50 to 60% of patients who were able to get through their psychotic break, their schizophrenic break, and never need to go on antipsychotics. And it was this group that at the end of one year, two years, three years, that would have the markedly better outcomes. And they were dramatically better. So what we really saw with this psychosocial care is that it provided an escape valve for many, many people who had descended into a schizophrenic state to, with the right psychosocial support, get better, recover in essence, and then not need to be on medications long-term. That's what we really learned. Now, interestingly, there was one other finding. Uh, when the uh, the NIMH study was led by a gentleman named Fuyan Carpenter, and after he reviewed these, these findings, which found higher relapse rates over the long-term in the drug-treated groups and, the, and in the... In the, in the all arms where conventional care was provided. He said, wow, this is so weird. He says, we have to ask ourselves, maybe putting people on these medications, the medications are causing some change in the brain that makes people more vulnerable to sky psychosis than they would be in the normal course of their illness. So he actually raised the the fear or the concern that the drugs were causing a brain change that over the long term made people more more vulnerable to psychosis. So this is really interesting. You go to a psych course, and you're told that they tried psychosocial care and it didn't work, and that's why we really had to embrace drug care. But yeah. that's not what the research showed. And by the way, if you look where the best outcomes for first-episode psychotic patients are today in the Western world, you'll find that the best outcomes are in northern Finland, in a region of Finland called Western Lapland. And there, they try to avoid use of the antipsychotics with first-episode psychotic patients and really do emphasize, um, you know, social care. Okay. We see all these advertisements on television these days uh, for these psychiatric drugs, and they all tell us that it's a chemical imbalance that causes depression. A chemical imbalance causes anxiety or schizophrenia. And um, they, I mean... 
have uh, scientists found a chemical imbalance that causes these things? Has it been identified? Well, this is really important. In some ways, I think this is the most important thing that the American public needs to know. So the chemical imbalance story, the way it arose, it really goes back to the 1960s. So in the 1960s, uh, researchers discovered that, for example, uh, antipsychotics worked by blocking dopamine receptors in the brain. Dopamine is a chemical messenger. So they hypothesized that people with schizophrenia had too much dopamine. And then they investigated that in the 1970s and early 1980s. And they just didn't find that as a matter of course, prior to being medicated, people had with schizophrenia had overactive dopamine systems. And now let's turn our attention to depression. So we've heard that depression is due to low serotonin, right? We've all been told that. A recent survey of American public said that 87% of Americans now know that uh, depression is caused by low serotonin. It's a testament to the ads. Well, where did that theory arrive? That theory arose, again, uh, because they found that, let's say, Prozac, um, you know, blocks the reuptake of serotonin from the synaptic cleft, therefore theoretically increasing serotonergic levels. So they hypothesized that people with depression had low serotonin. Well, you can you can follow the line of research. Believe it or not, the low serotonin theory of depression was really falling apart in research circles in 1984 because what happened is when they looked in unmedicated patients, they just didn't find that as a matter of course people had low serotonin. And there was I, We could go into it. There was various ways they tested that. Anyway, um, they kept, after Prozac came to market, they did continue to investigate. Do people with depression have uh, something that indicates low serotonergic activity, and they just did not find it time and time again. So you can find, for example, in a book written by Stephen Stahl, uh, who's a big biological psychiatrist. He wrote a textbook called Essential Psychopharmacology. 2002, he says, listen, there there is no compelling evidence that low serotonin accounts for depression. That is... uh, the, the deficit is not real, he says. <laughs> and um, interestingly, there right now, you know, my book and some others has, have, have stirred some controversy. And then Marsha Angel, who um, is a former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, wrote a two-part review of my book and others in the New York Review of Books in the last couple of months. And one of the things she says is, you know, Whitaker reviewed the literature and didn't find any evidence for chemical imbalance. And then he, she refers to other two books and um, those, she says, those authors didn't find any evidence of, of chemical imbalance either. And then some psychiatrists just this week have written back to criticize Marsha Angel. Here's what they say. And this is by uh, Dr. Nirenberg and I think it's Dr. Friedman, two big guys in the field. They said, shame on Marsha Angel, in essence, for uh, bringing this point up. We have known that the, the low serotonin deficit theory of depression is an outdated and disproven theory. We all know that, so don't try to criticize psychiatry uh, with the chemical that saying that we maintain that there are chemical imbalances. We know that's not true, and we've known that for a long time. And in essence, we haven't told patients that. Well, that's the important thing with that is here's the guys trying to defend psychiatry, saying that that theory was disproven a long time ago. Well, I don't think that the American public got that message. Um, not only did the American public not get that message, 
but in my biological psychology textbook that I basically had to memorize, I had to memorize the low serotonin theory and the dopamine theory for schizophrenia and all these theories that they are saying that they didn't even believe in. This is part of the real problem we have here. It's an information story. When you, I'll give you an example. So, one of the ways they test to see if people have, say, uh, low serotonin is this. So, serotonin is released into the synaptic cleft, all right, and then the the brain has to remove that from that that the neurotransmitter from that gap. And one of the ways it removes it, an enzyme comes along, metabolizes the serotonin, and you end up with serotonin metabolites in your cerebral spinal fluid, okay? And so they this is in the late 70s, early 80s. They reasoned that if people with depression had low serotonin, they should have low levels of metabolites. What did they find? They found that people with depression, there was sort of a bell curve in terms of the amount of metabolites they had in their cerebral spinal fluid, and that bell curve was the same as it was for normals. That's That was the very first thing they think. Then, anyway, I could go on and on and on, but time and time again, rather than find evidence supporting it, they find found evidence disproving it. And what really happened was this. In fact, in 1984, the NIMH, after concluding this research, said there it, there is, it isn't likely that any sort of mouth, you know, sort of lesion in the serotonergic system is a cause of depression. That's 1984. What happens is Prozac comes to market in 1987, and the, the Eli Lilly, the maker of that, wants to advertise it as fixing a chemical imbalance. And for it's a complicated reason, but basically the NIMH got involved in that marketing process and in telling the chemical imbalance story. But it was a marketing story, a, a story being done to get us to take Prozac. It wasn't a scientific story. And the final thing of this is this. So you go on an antidepressant, right? When you start, you do not have low serotonergic. You do not have a serotonergic deficiency. But the drug, okay, blocks the normal reuptake of serotonin from the synaptic cleft. So your brain in response says, "Uh uh-oh, this is a problem. Um, It has all these mechanisms for maintaining sort of what's called homeostatic equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So in response to the drug, two things happen. The presynaptic neurons start putting out less serotonin than normal, and your postsynaptic neurons, that's the neuron that receives the chemical, they actually pare away the density of the receptors for serotonin. So once you go on a drug, you actually are driven into a low serotonergic state. The density of your serotonergic receptors, it decreases by about half. So the irony is, we were told they fixed a a chemical imbalance, when in truth, here's what they found. They found you have no chemical imbalance uh, when you begin going on the drug, but by the time you go on the drug and are on it for a while, you actually, your brain is modified in a way that it ends up in a physiologically, um, you know, sort of low serotonergic state. That's the irony behind this whole thing. Now, one of the things I got from your book was um, that antidepressants, uh, they they help relieve some symptoms of depression in the short term, but in the long term, they can actually make depression worse. And even in the short term, they're not very effective at relieving symptoms of depression. Right. So oh, in the short term, many people given an antidepressant do improve. That's There's no question about that. But in terms of do they improve better than placebo? (laughs) And what you look at in the research is this. 
and and this is in meta-analysis, etc. For patients with mild depression, moderate depression, and even severe depression, they don't beat placebo by a significant amount, okay, clinically significant amount. The only place you see a benefit, a, a clinically significant benefit over placebo is in the very severely ill group, okay? And studies do find it in that subset of patients. But what that means is for all these other patients with sort of mild depression, moderate, and even what we call severe depression, you're not improving your odds of getting better even over the short term than you would with a placebo, okay? Mm-hmm. That's the first finding. More, But many people do get better. More important is what happens to the long-term course of patients. And what you find now with the long-term course is uh, a is, is about eight, only about 15% of people who go on an antidepressant remit, in other words, their depression goes away, and stay well over the long term. The remaining 85% start becoming having um, sort of recurrent systems. About 40, 50% uh, develop what's called treatment resistant depression, where they're just chronically depressed and nothing helps. Um, and so. For some people, and actually I think it's for a large percentage of patients, over the long term the drugs become depressogenic agents causing sort of a a change in brain brain function that leads to a much greater chronicity. And by the way, this worry shows up. Researchers began worrying about this in 1970, that they're inducing, they're turning depression into a chronic illness. In 1994, a guy named uh, Giovanni Fava from Italy, an editor of Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics, says, listen, I think we're causing brain changes that are making people, uh, at least some people, chronically depressed. You hear people, other people saying, yeah, this really is a worry, but the, the profession as a whole never investigates it, never tells the population about that, never tells patients about that. And just so you know, so I write this book, and that is getting some attention to this. Just last month, a researcher wrote a paper and he's finally even named this. He says, these drugs cause tardive dys- dysphoria, meaning sort of a more permanent dysphoria, in a significant percentage of patients. And he says, the worry is that if you take these drugs long term, and this tardive dysphoria develop, develops in significant percentage of patients, even then if they come off the medications, maybe there have been changes in the brain that will result in the depression remaining and that they're sort of they're now in a persistent depressive state. But people when they go on the meds are never told any of this. Well absolutely not. It looks like our second guest is here. I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna bring her on. Hello Dahlia, are you there? Hi, Ken, I'm here. Oh, hello. Okay. Bob, I want to thank you so much for being our guest tonight and telling us about your book. And uh, I recommend that uh, people be very proactive healthcare consumers and learn a lot about medications before they decide to take them. Great. And Ken, can I say one thing real quickly? This sure. book, The Anatomy and Epidemic, is not a medical advice book. It's really just a, a book sort of looking at long-term outcomes, et cetera. And so no one should read it or no one should... Uh, listen to this program and make a personal decision based on it. It's just uh, meant to look at the science and and stir discussion about what we might do better. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, Dahlia, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing very good. Our second guest is uh, Dahlia Heller, 
who uh, has a background in harm reduction. She was executive director at Citywide Harm Reduction in the Bronx. And later, she's become a deputy commissioner uh, in charge. Uh, uh, give me your title correctly. Actually, yeah, I know, and it's long and uh, it's a mouthful. <laughs> I'm actually um, the assistant commissioner for the Bureau of Alcohol and Drug Use Prevention, Care, and Treatment at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. You need a shorter job title. <laughs> yes, I know. We've thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, you're the one that's in charge of the drug and alcohol programs in New York City, right? Sure, drug and alcohol um, research policy and programs. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit, how did you get involved in harm reduction to begin with? Um, quite a while ago, I guess, at this point. Um, probably about 15 years ago. Um, I'm originally from Canada, and I moved down to the States, directly to New York City, of course, Um about a decade and a half ago, and I came down here actually very specifically with the intention of doing uh, community health work. I'd always been interested in health and medicine and kind of decided to go sort of a health, community health, but with a social policy or sort of a social justice um, head on my shoulders, and got involved in uh, community-based programs when I got here and working. I was really um, thinking a lot about uh, women. I was That was sort of my focus and my interest. Um, I was working on women's issues and obviously that always often includes family, so women and children. Um, and after I'd done some work for a couple of years, um, I decided to go, uh, I needed to go to school, I realized, to move forward, and so I started a master's in public health. And while I was uh, doing the master's in public health, actually for about a year I was there doing that program, I was fortunate to get a job. I was interested in, you know, I kind of had this idea that I would really like to run my own program. Um, and I was interested, I thought I understood how programs ran, I thought I, you know, kind of sort of had this gut of how you would design a program, what people need, and really responding really to people's really very clear needs was an, um, didn't seem like so difficult of how you would go about doing that, but the mystery to me was where you got the money to do it and uh, how you went about getting grants. And so sort of um, this opportunity came across my plate um, and I applied for a job to work at a foundation. That foundation happened to be the Drug Policy Foundation, um, which was an earlier incarnation, I guess, of what is now the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, but that at that time was a small foundation funding one of the few private funders and, you know, still we have very few private funders for syringe exchange in the United States. Um, and I was fortunate to get that job. And, you know, syringe exchange was not foreign to me. I grew up in Toronto. Um, I remember when the first uh, needle exchange opened down the block from my high school. Um, my, really, my best friend's mom and her boyfriend volunteered there. It was very normal. It made perfect sense to me in the 80s. HIV came along. We knew soon after that it was transmitted um, by uh, sharing syringes, and it just made sense to give people who were injecting drugs clean syringes. Um, I didn't realize it was such a hot topic here, quite honestly. And I mean, it seems kind of ironic now, 15 years later. Um, 
but I had worked and even I'd worked in some community programs um, in the Bronx and had worked with women who were injecting drugs, were HIV positive, and, you know, and I all like, I got that, but it hadn't crossed my mind, but where do you get clean needles? Because I was also dealing with all the other stuff going on in her life. And so I ended up getting this job and um, really learning about the politics of needle exchange in this country. And uh, that set me off on a different course, I guess. Um, I was fortunate from there to also come up, uh, come across a, a woman as I was completing my master's, and that job was closing up. They were moving the foundation office to D.C., and I decided I really did want to go back and work in the community. I didn't want to work in a foundation. I'm more of a person on the street or felt that that was where I wanted to be, and so um came across a professor who happened to be on the board of an organization that was looking for a director. Um, that was Citywide Harm Reduction, and I had, you know, I had approached her with, you know, a question about, I knew she knew a lot of people, and uh, asking whether she knew of any jobs out there, and so she told me about this, and because I had talked about harm reduction in her class and explained to the class what harm reduction was, and she was uh, impressed with how I had a grasp of the concept, I guess. And, um, you know, and, and but, I, you know, I went through extensive interviews with the board and was hired. Um, and that was Citywide Harm Reduction. So, um, and that organization was uh, founded by Brian Weil, who was um, an artist, a photographer, and um, an activist also involved early on with ACT UP and helped um, work with a group of folks who set up Bronx Harlem Needle Exchange um, back in the early 90s and um, decided to go off from break away from Bronx Harlem and start his own program because he felt that where Bronx Harlem Needle Exchange was setting up um, and working with people on the sidewalks, on the streets, so folks would come out um, They'd set up in areas where the um, new injectors were congregating and people would come and exchange syringes. Brian noticed that a lot of people were coming to the streets, to the street side um, syringe exchange sites from um, locations where they were actually staying and injecting. And he felt that a further way to move harm reduction forward and to, you know, better guarantee, I suppose, that you were getting to people and reaching people if they didn't come to you was to bring the syringes to them. And so he started Citywide Harm Reduction, um, bringing syringes into injectors living in single-room occupancy hotels um, around the city, well, really based around Bronx and Harlem, and in shooting galleries, which at that time there were a lot more, I suppose, what you'd conceptualize as a traditional shooting gallery. And Brian uh, formed a board. Um, got a fiscal conduit um, with the church and um, with an activist Latino church in the Bronx and then and uh, put together a uh, waiver to New York State Health Department to become waivered as a legal syringe exchange program in New York State. Um, had a group of volunteers working with him and uh, unfortunately um, overdosed and died very um, tragic death and um, a big surprise to everybody who'd been involved in working with him and Citywide. So um, the board was very moved by um, and very committed to Brian's um, 
energy and vision um, to have Citywide keep going. And so they decided that they were going to keep the organization going and try to find somebody um, to pick up where he had left off. And uh, that took a little while. So about a year later, I came in. And um, that's when, how I got started at <laughs> in Harm Reduction, sort of a long roundabout story. But it all makes sense when I look back on it. Okay, did you make any changes in Citywide while you were there? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, so I spent nine years at Citywide. Um, and when I started, Citywide was really a volunteer operation um, based out of the basement of a church. Um, actually, a, you know, sister church of the activist church that ha was actually serving as the fiscal conduit for the organization because that church didn't actually have a church at the time. So we were in somebody else's church um, who's also supportive of our work, but essentially just donated a room in the basement um, where we could have a computer and a phone line and, um, you know, store our supplies when we weren't going out in the field. So we really worked out of the van um, uh, six days a week. And uh, the funny thing was that I guess within a few months of me getting there, um, a government grant was announced to do harm reduction outreach in single-room occupancy hotels. And so I saw this and, you know, I was fresh out of my learning about grants, working at a foundation for a year. Um, and I decided, well, I, we should go for this. It's an opportunity. We already work in single-room occupancy hotels. We do syringe exchange door-to-door, -door and we give out condoms and, um, you know, uh, injecting, uh, sterile injecting equipment and give people referrals to local food pantries. But we could do more. We know we could bring lots more uh, to people in their rooms right there because we really build relationships with people. We'd go in there in the evenings and go door to door and really get to know people. And we were especially focused in uh, single room occupancy hotels where people living with AIDS who were homeless were being placed for emergency shelter by the city. Um, they weren't really supportive environments. They were commercial single room occupancy hotels. So landlords were getting paid to lease these rooms to the city who then in turn placed folks in there and people had a lot of needs and a lot of a lot of things going on um, and often we were the only people they saw so applied for this grant and uh, you know I think everybody sort of thought it was a long shot the board um, you know that that you know here I was uh, never actually tried to write a grant before um, and lo and behold, we got the grant, and it sort of um, it's more than doubled our budget. We had a budget of about 190,000 at the time that the board had actually worked very hard to secure, um, and with the promise, of course, of hiring a director, which is you know, and then I walked in, um, and so with that funding, we really you know that set us off, and uh, things just kept rolling from there. Um, over the nine years that I was there, um, Citywide grew and grew to become a rather large organization. When I left, there were about 40 staff, um, and I guess, you know, it was a large budget, almost $4 million. And, the you know, the budget grew because we developed programs um, that we felt were responsive to what people needed. Um, you know, we're always listening to what people needed and trying to 
figure out how we could integrate services better and and really do work that would bring um, really uh, supportive services to people to really help improve their lives. So, um, you know, what began with having a space, which was at least helpful because it was good to have somewhere that people could come to um, to get out of the SRO, for example, or to get off the street, to get out of the gallery. Um, and then once they were there, uh, you know, we wanted to be able to offer things. So we always made sure we had food, um, very simple stuff. But then we started uh, a peer program early on um, because I'd really seen how that um, really created a supportive environment for people and they could uh, – start, you know, working towards something and people often felt like they hadn't, uh, you know, completed anything ever in their life, that they dropped out of school mm-hmm. or, you know, and especially people who struggled with uh, chronic substance use for many years and a lot of people were ostracized from their families and to be able to offer a space that would support people to go through and, you know, we developed a curriculum and then eventually we got it fully funded, but at the time we just pull things together and pull things together and, you know, make it really about developing self, understanding basic health education, HIV prevention work, and then outreach strategies and really training people to be able to go out there and um, reach their community and share information and um, engage people and help them improve their lives. So, um and, you know, over time we developed people needed services and they needed help getting those services. Giving somebody a referral is different from helping them make an appointment, for example. Um, so getting case management services going. And then people wanted to have groups, so we started offering groups. And then we wanted to really bring in medical care, so we um, started, we had initially had um, Montefiore residents from the social medicine program at Montefiore coming out with us in the evenings in the SRO hotels, and, and, you know, that was great to be able to offer to people at least to see a doctor in the moment, dealing people dealing with abscesses um, right then and there, or lost medication, or and some folks were just really sick. I mean, again, this was the late 90s, so... Well, um, you know, antiretroviral therapy had just started to come out. These were not the people who were getting access to antiretroviral mm-hmm. therapy at that time. So um, we started building more and more of a medical program um, through the social medicine residents and then um, their connection into a community health center um, run by Montefiore locally and local to um our site and a lot of the SRO hotels in the South Bronx and then being able to actually bring people to get medical care there, having appointment slots reserved for citywide participants so we didn't have to struggle to get appointments and really building out that um, effort and getting people into regular medical care, which was, you know, I think really a lifesaver for some people. And, you know, for some people we lost, um, you know, I mean, a lot of folks, is, we, I think we still see this problem that people who um, got infected with HIV through injecting drug use um, seem to come, tend to come later to um, maybe get diagnosed later, but even if they don't get diagnosed later, they definitely seem to come later to um, care, and I think a lot of that is how care, medical care, and the healthcare system operates, and it's not always easy to access, 
and not always supportive of people who uh, maybe are continuing to use drugs. Um, and so I think it was important, you know, that we were sort of actively recognizing that people want to take care of themselves just because they use drugs doesn't mean they don't want to live and they want to take care of themselves. So really providing that support. And things kept expanding. Um, we were moved into more single room occupancy hotels. I think at the peak we were in, I think, upwards of 30 um, around, scattered around the Bronx and upper Manhattan, a um, couple in Brooklyn for a while, more than 30, maybe even 40. Um, and um, we ended up offering medical care in the drop-in center as much as we could then, um, getting that going, and um, then starting to do housing assistance to actually place people into housing really actively because that continues. Of course, that's a problem for everybody in New York City. This is a difficult mm-hmm. city to live in. I think it's one of our, you know, we know the rent is too damn high or whatever. <laughs> it's a very expensive place. And so that was a, a big piece to be able to do housing. And along the way, always... Um, Making sure the participants had a voice, not only in the development of the program um, itself, but also to be able to go out publicly and talk about their experiences and their needs and really um, maintaining an active voice in advocacy around issues around homelessness, HIV, drug use, injecting drug use, needle exchange uh, in New York City and even nationally. Um, times we'd go to D.C. So, yeah, it was quite a ride nine years mm-hmm. so harm reduction is a lot more than just a clean needle it really treats the whole person right I have always um, envisioned harm reduction as rather than being an, an intervention in and of itself it's like an orientation um, to um, providing a service and it's an orientation to, I mean, I, I'd prefer to think about it in the realm of substance use, although people will say that, for example, wearing a seatbelt when you're driving a car is harm reduction because you know that you're putting yourself at risk driving a car, but you wear a seatbelt to reduce that risk mm-hmm. um, of, you know, some adverse event happening, an accident where you get hurt. But I, I think harm reduction is really, I mean, it's about drug use or about substance use. So I think it's best to think about it as substance use. And I think really it's just about um, recognizing that there isn't just uh, a one-size-fits-all or a cookie-cutter, this is how we deal with substance use, and this is how our society should deal with substance use. That substance use should be treated as a, you know, we talk about this in, in my work now, really frequently, you know, very frequently, and I think SAMHSA finally recognized this in the last decade, that substance use is uh, frequently, uh, substance use disorders are, you know, like a chronic relapsing condition is the term that's been used, right? The idea Mm -hmm. of chronicity, though, is recognizing that it's something that people need help to, or people could use help to manage, um, and if they choose to eliminate as their way of managing or to, you know, abstain from drugs, for example, as their solution to management, that's equally supported to they continue to use drugs, that they're going to continue to use drugs in a way that they can maintain or continue to function in other areas of their life. And 
you know, that's what, you know, we traditionally conceptualize as harm reduction, but I think it's all harm reduction. And it is, it's really about, yeah, what does this person need to continue and, and manage in the, all the domains of life that, you know, make us a whole person, make up what it means to be human. Well, absolutely. I agree that uh, abstinence is one way to reduce harm. It's a very effective way to get rid of harm when people can succeed at it. You know, it's the problem is when it's someone tries to force it on someone from the outside, it doesn't work too well. But uh, since you mentioned automobiles, that's my harm reduction for automobiles is to abstain from driving one. So <laughs> I understand that. I I think I practice that myself as much as possible. Now, let me ask you, uh, how did you get involved with the city government? Um. So that was sort of, you know, as things happen. Um, I So, I, you know, I was at Citywide for nine years, and after about eight years, I realized that I was really um, starting to burn out myself and that, I, you know, it was time for me to start thinking about moving on. Um, it was, you know, tough. We went, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of things happened, and we had been through a lot, and we grew very quickly, and... You know, a lot of this, uh, in this work, there's always a lot of pain. Um, you know, it's very difficult. You're losing people all the time, and we're working in an environment where, you know, anything could happen at any time, and it often does. So um, I decided, you know, it was time for somebody else to move in citywide, and it was time for me to move on, um, you know, or I felt like I would probably have a complete breakdown. So, um as I started thinking about that and planning that and dealing with what would citywide look like and before, you know, and as I started um, kind of thinking about where I wanted to go, I was, I had started working on a PhD and, you know, I had this interesting moment where I heard that uh, the city health department had decided to create a position called director of harm reduction. Um, the city health department had recently just started funding syringe exchange for the first time since the late 80s, you know, since the mm-hmm. infancy, uh, we're going to experiment with the concept of syringe exchange days. And, um, you know, really the, with this administration, um, Bloomberg and under the leadership of Tom Frieden, the health department moved forward and said we need to baseline money for syringe exchange. So they needed somebody to come in and help figure out how they were going to manage that then and what that meant and what else could they do. And I think we had just started um, working on overdose prevention and a law was successfully passed in early 2006. So around that time then, and I was, you know, running to my recognizing that I was hitting burnout or I was going to hit really bad burnout if I didn't make a change, um, hearing about this position and, speaking to the city and deciding, yeah, okay, I want to throw my hat in for that. I think that would be interesting. I have, uh, you know, having worked, and you're working on the ground for a long time and you see how things could be different if systems just work differently. So, you know, from that idealistic kind of perspective, I thought, yeah, let me go try this out and um, be a good change and, uh, you know, see if you really can move some systems. So, uh, I began, uh, I left Citywide in the in June 06, and in July 06, I started at the health department as the director of harm reduction, which is based out of the HIV Bureau at the time. 
Um, and then, you know, started working on some things, working with the homeless shelter system, for example, having worked with homeless people for many years who chose not to go into the homeless shelter system for a variety of reasons related to their drug use. Um, so working with the system to start to maybe try to change some of those and uh, some other areas. And um, then, uh, you know, as things go in life and I suppose maybe in government more frequently, there was a little shakeup and a redesign of the Division of Mental Hygiene in the department, um, which is where substance use had uh, traditionally sat or sat, did sit. Um, and alongside mental health, um, which is sort of in the traditional conception of, you know, how we see the federal government organized with SAMHSA. We have substance abuse and mental health side by side. Um, and I was uh, sort of, I guess, invited to apply for the position um, to be assistant commissioner um, in the bureau, which has become this bureau with the long name, <laughs> which I won't <laughs> repeat, but essentially a bureau of substance use services. Um, and so I began there. It's been almost four years now um, in that job. And one of the things I negotiated, though, I, I felt was very important, was that I bring syringe exchange with me. Um, because I, I feel that, you know, really where we need to go with substance use services in this society, if we're going to move forward in, in any way with how we think about and how we address and how we respond to substance use, is really to start to break down these walls and erase the lines between what we, you know, this idea of harm reduction um, and that our conceptions, which, you know, the way we operate in this traditional notion of drug treatment, which is very mm -hmm. oriented around an abstinence-only model. Um, and so in bringing syringe exchange and moving it out of just being an HIV service and being really more of a substance use service, because I think that, you know, um, if we were lucky enough to have HIV go away tomorrow, to have hepatitis C go away tomorrow, how would we think about injecting drug use and syringe distribution? Would we think about syringe distribution? Would it still be a disease prevention service or would it be something else? And I, I you know, I would argue that, uh, especially for example in New York City, a lot of the syringe exchange programs, they're also serving people who smoke crack. You know, because people who inject drugs don't just hang out with people who inject drugs. People who inject drugs hang out with people who do other things. Some of their friends don't even use drugs. They have family members maybe who don't use drugs or alcohol. Um, but, you know, there are there is other substance use, and I think it, it needs to all become part of a continuum of services and how we respond to substance use in our society. So... That's where we're at now, trying to um, trying to move a set of um, services forward and trying to think about policy change that could shift really the paradigm of um, treatment towards more of a, I mean, we call it like a public health approach or a public health framework. Um, but I really think what we mean by that is a harm reduction framework because you know, the truth is people choosing abstinence, as we've said already, is harm reduction. And um, we can support that in just the same way as we support giving an injecting drug user who's not prepared to stop and, in fact, is going to walk out of here and go inject drugs a clean needle because we know that's going to protect them now. But that person might say, you know what, but next week 
I want to start planning because I want to change. And that's how you work with people. You know, people, people can set their own plans. And what we need to do is do a better job of supporting them and getting there. So, and developing a service system that is supportive. So that's one of the things we're working on now in work. I see that uh, quite a bit uh, with a lot of professionals in substance abuse these days that they're more open to uh, harm reduction ideas than, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago that would have been, you know, didn't even talk to me about this stuff. But now so many people I see are saying, well, this is something that we need to incorporate too. You know, it's the abstinence only is not the way to go. We have to have the abstinence and the harm reduction both together. Right. Right. I think that um, what started to change, like I said, you know, there's sort of the big Tom McClellan statement in the 90s of, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't like the word addiction so much, but okay, his, ter- his, his phrase is that addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder. And if you start to think about, you know, well, what, what does it look like then to have a chronic care model instead of this sort of what we have now, an acute care model where you go in and then, you know, you're finished and you're done and you leave and you're cured and, you know, well, what happens when you relapse? You know, oh, you have to start back at square zero again, you know. Um, and we started to have this language of recovery become more prominent. And, you know, the idea of recovery, although it is still very linked to abstinence, but I think, you know, I mean, I remember we always used to say to treatment folks when we were trying to, like, build some of those bridges that, you know, relapse is a part of recovery, right? Mm-hmm. We say that to people you're working with when they relapse. And, you know, I think that's a that's a big message when, you know, and that's a message that everybody hears. I mean, you hear that in the 12-step programs, right? And, and it's because we're not here to reject people, right? And so people shouldn't be beating themselves up for, you know, the relapse that happened to they should be recognizing that they're sitting here now telling you about it instead of still out there on a run and hiding out and beating themselves up and hurting themselves. So, um, And it doesn't mean that maybe they're ready to stop using. Maybe they can, you know, re-envision where they want to go. So that idea, though, this notion of recovery, I think, is, is sort of what's forcing and the idea that we need to build more of a chronic care model is bringing harm reduction more into a mainstream dialogue, I think, with treatment. And so it's a good time to be uh, doing this work. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you very much. That's a good point to stop. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dahlia. Thank you. And uh, next week, our guests will be Kathleen Siaka will be telling us about motivational interviewing and Jerry Dorsman, the author of How to Quit Drinking Without AA, will be here to tell us about his book. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you got the Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.